Well, hello, All right, hello. ladies and gentlemen. Oh, go ahead, Tim. Miscommunication uh, on who's hosting. Yeah, well, sorry. Your host, you host. This was your idea, impromptu idea. I'm unprepared. Let's go. <laughs> well, hello, hello. I am Brandon Kirby, a.k.a. The Drunken Libertarian. And with me today, as always, is Tim the Toolman Moen. Tim, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I'm a little groggy right now. I, uh, I'm in between night shifts. As you know, Brandon, I'm out there on the front lines of the pandemic, uh, seeing spikes in COVID cases. And uh, that was a rough night last night. And uh, I tried listening to that budget and it kind of put me to sleep. I dozed off a few times. So I might have to hit you up for some of the highlights. I have I, I heard some a few things that piqued my interest. But uh, yeah, there's there's where I'm at. Excellent. Well, let's uh, let's dig into it. I mean, there was uh, quite a bit there. This is a consequential budget. There's uh, no way around it. It's, huh. uh, you know, I'm not going to go on the record and say anything positive about it because I really didn't see a whole lot there that uh, gave me hope for the future of economic growth within Canada. But uh, be that as it may, it's definitely a consequential budget. It's consequential, all right. Yeah, I, I didn't see the final tally or the i don't think they they mentioned it in the the throne speech there um but i did hear that it was expected to be uh create a debt uh that is bigger than the cumulative debt of the previous 22 prime ministers and uh it doesn't that that would not surprise me based on all the spending on it let's just uh hit some of the highlights here I don't uh, recall what the actual uh, number of the deficit was. Uh, it, it was right around $360 billion. Um, they, they did give a specific figure, I, like I have come across it, but it was around $360 billion. What they were talking about in the rumor mill uh, came into fruition. So that's the projected. Now, again, budgets right. don't always match their projections. Uh, any accountant worth yeah. salt can tell you that. But uh, we're looking at uh, a serious... I mean, the Canadian economy is about what two point two trillion. So we're looking at uh, over ten percent of the GDP, which is, you know, that that's unheard of. Yeah, it is, and um, you know, obviously taxes aren't going to be enough to pay for this, so they're going to have to print scads of money, and uh, and rob the Canadians' buying power uh, to pay for it. And when that happens, when they turn on the the printing presses at the central bank um the the big guys always make out better than the little guys the always the, uh, yeah the velocity of money says that the people that get access to that money first the the big banks the um the mega corps that are are and their cronious pals um they always uh, get the, they enjoy the buying power of that dollar and by the time it trickles down to us little guys that buying power has eroded considerably and uh you know so when we see the price of milk and everything else go up twice as much next year or the year after or even more i mean we're already seeing uh stress on on lumber prices in different different areas mm. um that is the go government robbing you of your buying power and that that comes from this kind of spending and i mean of course the last year there's been always th there was an unprecedented amount of monetary spending and, and that's going to create inflation and um the big guys the megacorps and the banks they're going to make out like bandits the politicians always make out like bandits and uh, the rest of us are going to suffer the consequence of it 
Well, you know, that's true. Uh, one of the things that I would highlight, though, just to anyone uh, who's listening, you can protect yourself. I remember 2015 when we voted for these deficits, we voted the Liberals in. Uh, my first thought was, gosh, wh why would Canadians do this to themselves? So I invested in crypto, I invested in gold, I took out some bank stocks. And, you know, soon thereafter, I sold my bank stocks and bought my second house. So like, you can be one of the fat cats that uh, if you position yourself correctly, uh, you can profit sure. off of it. Like if you position yourself correctly, if you take 10% of your paycheck and you invest it into a portfolio, eventually that portfolio is going to grow where you're one of the ones who sees your wealth expand. But, you know, people who don't know how the system works, uh, they're not going to be the recipients of this. And it's the people who don't know how the system works that I'm worried about. But I think you hit the nail on the head. We're not seeing prices rise. What we're seeing is the decline of the purchasing power of our dollar. We're seeing the decline of the yeah. value of money. It's, I mean, okay, so grocery uh, prices, I don't know what the situation is out in Alberta. I can tell you in New Brunswick, grocery prices are going both sky and high out here. I, we're seeing it in lumber. We're seeing it all over the place. Uh, but right. you're going to see it uh, cascade all throughout the economy. And it's, it's, yeah. it's sad to see that happen. Well, if we have time later, let's talk about some of the ways that our viewers and listeners out there can protect themselves and maybe come out even ahead given the the coming chaos uh but let, right now let's let's hit the highlights of this uh budget what's what stood out for you brandon on this uh, probably the biggest thing was the raise of the minimum wage going to 15 dollars an hour that i think uh, Ooh, and it I seems to have been yeah that was glossed over i didn't see it in any of the news headlines but uh, freeland did mention it so i i mean i i jotted it down it's uh I'm not seeing it in any of the headlines, but yeah, $15 an hour. I think that's, that's really going to hurt employment. I mean, look. Oh yeah, there it is. 3.4 page 116 establishing a $15 federal minimum wage. Now is that, um, is that for federal workers or for everybody? Well, it's federal minimum wage. I mean, typically the minimum wage was set provincially. There was a federal minimum wage, but all the provinces were higher than the federal minimum wage. So I'm guessing that's what it is. It could be for just for federal workers, but, uh, you know, th there's going to be a lot of cost for that. Right. Actually, yeah, I'm reading it now and it looks like uh, who current, yeah, the this will directly benefit over 26,000 workers who currently make less than $15 per hour in the federally regulated private sector. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And we'll so, have to see how encompassing it is, but that's, uh, you know, it's not cheap. It, it comes with a cost and we're all going to be paying that cost. Right. Right. And, you and know, I, I mean, I mean, if we're playing the race card as well, federal, you know, minimum wage was brought in as a, it was a, had some racist intent behind it, didn't it? Progressives that were uh, threatened, their unions threatened by um, minority labor, I think in the twenties or thirties um, during, you know, reconstruction, uh, they, they fought for a minimum wage to price block people out of the market. And, you know, again, it's going to be, Who's going to suffer from a rise in minimum wage? You know, I think progressives think that what happens is all these people that are employed right now, well, their wage just goes up. Well, no, they start laying people off and they lay off the people that have the fewest skills and, and are providing the least value. People from disadvantaged communities uh, that might include minorities and teenagers and, and lower economic um socioeconomic people who then can't get their foot in the door into the workforce to start building up those skills to become more valuable and, and price their wage at a higher price. Uh, they're the ones that are going to be affected. 
um, you know, those of us, and, and that's going to, you know, reach, enforce the, the cycle of po poverty uh, because uh, if they can't get a job now, what do they got to do? They, they got to get a handout. So, uh, yeah, that's a terribly tragic thing. Yeah. And, you know, I might sound like a horse's ass uh, coming against minimum wage working for the hedge fund industry, but my first job was scrubbing toilets. And I'm glad, like, you know, I wasn't producing $15 worth of productivity at that time. You know, I, I got my foot in the door eventually to work my way up uh, at a call center earning $12 an hour. And I was, you know, pretty much maxing out uh, for what we were producing. If I didn't have the advantage to work for that kind of wage, I would have never uh, gotten into the hedge fund industry. I, that's that's where I started out. That gave me the opportunity and I was grateful for it. Like, I, yeah. I really think we need to stress in the next election. I think we've got to be strategic about this because we believe in sound money. If we had sound money, this increases the purchasing power. When we abolished the gold standard, 31, 32, 33, there was a bit of a, a few benchmarks where you could say it was, the lowest minimum wage was 25 cents an hour. Well, if we simply kept it at 25 cents an hour, if you look at the value of gold today, 2021, that purchasing power, I mean, it'd still be 25 cents an hour if we never raised it, but the purchasing power would be about $30 an hour. Right. So who's getting that extra purchasing power and it's as you say it's the fat cats at the top it's not the right. low-income people they're not the ones who benefit yeah. it's the people well, well and, and 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 the people that progressives claim it's going to you know it's going to eat the rich right it's going to affect the fat cats at the top by introducing a minimum wage they're the last people that are going to get affected by it they're the ones that are pushing for a minimum wage you know the walmarts and the costcos Absolutely. and the and the amazons of the world they can afford to pay the minimum wage it's their competition that can't so if you yeah, want to entrench a, a monopoly uh this is part of how you do it well let's let's go through the budget here you know uh we promised the folks a uh, an analysis of this budget let's let's go through the the high points of it. I've got it opened up here. I'll just go through the, the headlines of the budget. Sure. And, and we can make our comments from there. I see there's a few comments coming in already. Tom uh, has, has said they'll just ask Uncle Klaus. You know, I think he's talking about Klaus Schwab and the, the great reset. And, uh, you know, I, I, I the, this budget definitely reflects that. We will definitely get to that, Tom, because there is a part of the budget that definitely has uh, the fingerprints of the great reset all over it, let's just say. But let's yeah. start from the top here. Uh, okay. First of all, finishing the fight against COVID-19, keeping Canadians healthy and safe. Uh, and I, I, was, I had to chuckle when I was listening to this part because she was talking about how this was like a natural disaster, right? All these people are out of work. And if you don't support this budget, while well, you're just, you're not a person who just got laid off by their employer or a student who can't get a job or this you saw that. that I'm, part. I'm thinking to my, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, you guys are the reason why they're unemployed, why they're getting laid off. This is a classic example. Harry Brown, the great libertarian leader from the States, one of the best libertarians that ever existed in my humble opinion. Uh, used to have a used to say that government is really good at breaking your legs and then giving you a crutch and expecting to be thanked for it. And this is an, a perfect example of that. Um, government here has broken Canadians' legs, absolutely shattered their lives over the past uh, year and a bit, and now it is um, it's it's playing like it's a, a charitable entity, uh, just uh, this motherly, empathetic, compassionate thing now lifting them up. Okay. I mean, it's a cycle of abuse, you know, it, you, it you, you batter people down and then you, you demand, you know, almost like a thanks 
when you when you try to compensate them for that damage that you've created for them but just, just how about we just stop damaging people how about you just stop locking them down how about you stop destroying the economy stop shutting down businesses uh that might be a good one all well, right i think uh, on top of, I, I saw a meme recently where somebody had uh, talked about their abusive ex-boyfriend and then at the end they said by the way that wasn't my boyfriend that was right. the government it, yeah, yeah i really I, I i don't know how to encapsulate the feeling that i get when i heard uh, christia freeland and justin trudeau does it all the time where they talk down to you saying oh this oh. is their plight and i understand right, right, right. their plight and it's no you don't you're voting for well, yourselves the these massive wage increases and all of a sudden you want to pretend to understand the problems that they themselves caused it, it's so infuriating yeah and and just the, her, the tone of her voice this is kind of a petty thing and and you know i feel embarrassed for bringing it up but the, the impression I got the whole time she was talking to me through the through through uh, the screen there was that she was a kindergarten teacher talking down to her little children and you know that this is I've often said that that the liberal mentality is that um, that other pe people that aren't them that aren't part of the elite uh, you know th these scientific central planners uh, who are super intelligent as they see themselves, they're just little children and especially minorities are little children right they they look at, at minorities as they are they have no agency they're absolutely um helpless without uh government and i, I find it pretty disgusting and, and her tone was just full of that um today something um, worth looking up is manchester syndrome by proxy i mean it's permeated throughout sure. the budget but it's it's when a caregiver can't accept that the person they're caring for is getting well it, it when well it's, it's even worse than that it's it's they they make their the pe person they're supposed to be caring for sick so yeah. that they can get attention when they bring them in for care and are helping them get better that's right? their identity and, yeah. and so it's not just that they they um imagine they're getting sick they actually make them sick you know i see this on my job sometimes so oh okay uh, it, oh, the, it, yeah, yeah it's a disturbing uh a disturbing thing okay that's so, a whole so other that's, podcast yeah yeah that's a whole other podcast but that that is uh basically uh the first part of this budget is finishing the fight against covid again they're they're breaking your legs and then handing you a crutch and that's what it is it talks about extending uh subsidies all sorts of subsidies rent subsidies wage subsidies uh, emergency business accounts all that that kind of thing so all the stuff that we've been seeing over the past year they're extending that till uh, the end of this uh, end of september uh, part two is create creating jobs and growth. And here we get into women in the economy. And of course, we heard over and over again how this um, the, this pandemic disproportionately affects women. Um, it's a she session, as Trudeau says in that condescending. Sure, right, right. It's a she session. And, you know, I, I don't know whether there's truth. There probably is some truth to that. Certainly, um, you know, uh, now like here we have a population of canadians that are used to government funded daycare in the form of public education right so we've gotten used you know and and parents their biggest complaint with uh schools shutting down is that what am i going to do for childcare? you know because so they've gotten used to this so you know we, we've got a population of parents that have abdicated the responsibility of looking after their children to the state for years and then when the state can't do it well now the Canadians are, are <laughs> unduly affected by it. Um, 
we're we've got relief from student debt here. Uh, I don't know the the full details on that. I kind of missed out on that. I, I don't know they how much interest on student loan until twenty thirty. Which okay, you know, well, uh, that'll keep the cost of education down, won't it, Brandon? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Jeez. Yeah, it's going to yeah. take a nose dive for sure. Cheap student loans haven't haven't increase the cost of a post-secondary yeah, So tuition fees are going to go up because demand goes up. But, you know, one of the things a, a friend of mine said right before the budget started, uh, he was over and uh, he said, well, tell me what they do about student loan because I, I said it's probably going to be part of the budget. And he said, I'm going to be so pissed if they do something there because he just forked over $10,000 to pay off his student loans. You know, f- for the people that worked hard, I think a good uh, – a good solution to this is to make uh, student loans part of bankruptcy. Like you can go bankrupt. And I mean, I don't advocate doing that. I'm, I'm a finance guy, but uh, people can't do that. But there has to be some sort of reward for people working hard, paying off their student loans. And now that's been completely taken away from them. There's no reason for them to have done that at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If liberals are paternalistic and condescending, I'm calling, chiming in from... Uh, Calgary, I think. Uh, O'Toole is no better. Yeah, no, you're definitely right there. You know, uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, is demanding that the Prime Minister enact the Emergency Measures Act, right? It used to be the War Measures Act that gives uh, the government all sorts of powers to suspend civil liberties and expropriate things and do all that, you know. But uh, what I think some people are forgetting is that that's what O'Toole was demanding just over a year ago as he was running for leader of the Conservative Party. And the Conservatives still elected that tool as their leader. So I, I can't decide anymore, Brandon, are the are Conservatives progressives driving the speed limit or are progressives conservatives driving the speed limit our parties have literally blurred that line now it's a sad state of affairs well i think they've done that but i mean if you take a look at the conservative uh, if you take a look at o'toole he's to the left of where trudeau was in 2015 so i mean yeah maybe he's out uh, pacing trudeau in some areas but certainly overall I, i mean they're very far to the left party stephen harper by multiple metrics was to the left of pierre elliott trudeau terms of spending but uh eric has an interesting comment here and i noticed this too actually during the budget uh there was a a paragraph there where um freeland said that talked about all the things that were going to be the backbone of canadian economy she talked about all these green innovations and digital uh innovations and steel and aluminum uh but uh noticeably missing from this was oil and gas the thing that powers, especially Western Canada, but really the rest of Canada. Uh, so I thought that was uh, fairly interesting uh, well, as well. Big in New Brunswick too. I mean, St. John, John, New Brunswick's got the largest oil refinery, but I can tell you, I think we've got real potential for growth here as a party because you take a look at Aaron O'Toole supporting a carbon tax. I suspect that's going to, it's going to cost them big in Alberta, but Saskatchewan is where we've got the capacity to pick up uh, some steam. Uh, New Brunswick as well. Uh, with Aaron O'Toole supporting a carbon tax, I think this is a promise for real growth for the Libertarian Party. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, everyone seems to be absolute junk these days. Um, all right, where are we at here? So we're still on Chapter 2, Creating Jobs and Growth. Okay, here's where we get to the federal <laughs> minimum wage. Um, uh, employee Ownership Trust... 
actions against predatory lending. Well, here's one good thing. They they talk about opening up trade barriers in Canada. I think that, uh, you know, as long as they're doing it by removing barriers rather than creating federal programs, I think that's a good thing. So the, there's one positive thing I think we can say in this absolutely quagmire of junk. But um investing in Canada's entrepreneurs. Oh, did you hear this one, Brandon? And correct me if I'm wrong here, because I was half asleep when I was listening to this. Uh, Friedland's voice, just something about it, made me lull off to sleep. Like I was back in kindergarten again or something at his nap time. Uh, but uh, she, she mentioned something about, I think it was $4 billion into, um, in, into some kind of tech. She called it a core of of tech wizards or something like that a yeah, core of, of digital computing. yeah yeah and and training something like 180,000 did i hear that right 180,000 like young people to be to help businesses uh innovate take, innovate and do all these things because that's exactly what a business needs is someone coming right out of one of these uh leftist institutions who's never even probably worked a job in their life giving them business advice about what they should do for tech to make their help their business grow uh four billion dollars i can't imagine there's going to be any uh <laughs> any nonsense going on with that at all well, I, I think that's a good point. I mean, it, it's supposed to be for entrepreneurs. I don't know how entrepreneur, entrepreneurs uh, take advantage of the program. They're a little light on the details. I'd like to look a little bit more into it. But I can tell you it was the exact same thing. It's the exact same mentality of big government knows best because they also invested, uh, I think previously it was $4 billion for uh, the infrastructure for uh, high-speed internet in rural communities. And they did another billion in this budget. And when I read that, I think that was back in 2019, I, I started scratching my head and I said, why are you doing that? Elon Musk is doing it for free. Like the private, yeah. and I, not only that, but I was looking yeah, at yeah, the that's, projections. Yeah, that's the next part. They're, they're talking about uh, a digital uh, accelerating broadband for everyone, right? So they want to build all this national infrastructure um, for broadband. Well, I, I, yeah. Elon Musk is already doing this. Well, and he's speaking to it because I remember in 2019, I was saying, why are you, I think I wrote about it in being libertarian, but I said, why are you doing this when their projected end dates were five years after Elon Musk's projected end date? So he's going to beat them to it. Why? Because the private sector knows better than government bureaucracy. There's organizational management reasons for that. There's lots of reasons why the private sector opaces the government, but Elon Musk, you don't, you could have spent zero dollars and we'd have the exact same result. Uh, right. He's going to do it first. They're going to be slow. And it's the same mentality with this 180,000 uh, new jobs for uh, techies to come to your new uh, startup for venture a capitalism. Core, a core of, of techies. I mean, he made it sound like it was like the the core military core of engineers or something like that uh, yeah. they're going to be going out there and you know it's like a national you know a brown shirt program of these i'm sure socially justice indoctrinated kids telling you how to run and innovate in your business i'm, I'm sure that's going to go over like a lead balloon they um, could okay, just let's, let's stop they could just stop taking money from businesses in the first place and let them invest their own capital where they need to invest that capital because they can make better decisions than a government and a far distant capital can make those decisions right yeah 
And then it, here we go, chapter four, helping Canadian business grow and succeed. Um, you know, they're going to help small and medium-sized business move into the digital age. I think this is where that core of uh, techs come in, supporting entrepreneurs, including equity, equity deserving entrepreneurs, supporting women entrepreneurs, supporting black op- entrepreneurs. Um, and it goes on from there, building infrastructure to boost trade. Uh, investing, here's some interesting ones, investing in world-leading research and innovation. Tell me just your general feeling about this line of the budget, renewing the pan-Canadian artificial intelligence strategy. How does artificial intelligence in government grab you, Brandon? <laughs> uh, well, they, maybe from the pages of 1984, I don't know. Um, but <laughs> Launching a pan-Canadian genomic strategy. How about that? You want the government getting involved in genetics? I just don't Um, know what Justin Trudeau thinks. I don't know why he thinks he's capable. It's the same thing with green tech. You know, I have 117% rate of return on green tech. I'd be happy to talk about the advantages of it. I just don't know why they see themselves is capable in terms of finding out who's going to be doing the best R&D. Like I, there's nothing right. on their resumes that suggests that they're capable of doing it, but they think that they can, this field that they've never ventured into. Now, I, right. I mean, y- there's lots of things you can conjure up in terms of nightmare scenarios of the government having uh, increased access to AI. AI is coming, and I think these nightmare scenarios yeah. are in, in some sense unavoidable. It's, there's nightmare scenarios. I just don't know why the government feels entitled to take our money and invest in things they know nothing about. Well, Right. Yeah. I mean, these are the people making these decisions have never uh, produced a business. They've never uh, served customers. They they have been living off the plunder of others for their entire lives. They're bureaucrats and professional politicians, and they're going to be training uh, people coming out of universities that have never had a job in their life who are indoctrinated into the, the, the social justice um, ideology. And yeah, this is uh, the idea that these people, that cabal of people uh, knows best what to do with my money and your money and and these billions of dollars in tax revenues in order to support the innovation as if they know where where that innovation is, is uh, utterly insane. But let's get into chapter five here, a healthy environment for a healthy economy. And this is where they start talking. This is where it really doubles down on uh, the Great Reset and, and the green economy. It has the fingerprints of those all over it, growing our net zero economy. Uh, the goal is uh, to decrease our emissions from 2005 uh, levels by 36% by the year, what, Brandon? 2030. Is that, is that your sound familiar? You ever hear of Agenda 2030? Um, Talking about Davos? Well, that's the UN agenda for uh, climate goals and remaking the world, you know, into this kind of globalist uh, infrastructure of, you know, and it it meshes perfectly with, of course, with Klaus Schwab's plan for the Great Reset. Uh, Eventually, they want to get our our CO2 to net zero by 2050, which uh, seems pretty damn ambitious, if you ask me, uh, considering we live in a damn cold place and we need some uh, cheap, reliable energy, and you know, nuclear is a long is a ways off, and solar power doesn't work that well up here, and neither does wind or any of these other things that they they want. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what they think they're going to replace fossil fuels with. But um, well, I'll tell you, with nuclear, New Brunswick had the capacity to go nuclear. We've got I can't remember what it is. It's like two hundred or three hundred uh, small modular reactors that the federal government is blocking right now. Like we're not 
able to go nuclear because of government regulations. It's it's ridiculous. There's people that actually know how to get the job done. They're doing it at Point Lepro in New Brunswick, and we can't get this underway because the federal government keeps blocking it. It's so frustrating. I mean, I, I don't know what the solution is. I, I, I think we could probably drastically reduce our carbon emissions, but uh, be that as it may, it, it comes down to this, why are they the ones trying to guide that. And I, I really do think that we have to spend a lot of time talking about uh, the Great Reset because it's yeah. a group of people that think, okay, well, I know how to guide the economy. The term that I've heard is called stakeholder capitalism. I kept yes. hearing this term again and again, yep. stakeholder. Stake They're not using it in the way a business sense is using the word stakeholder. They're using no. it as- uh, It's not shareholder capitalism because it has nothing to do with people that are actually invested in your business. It's everyone in the world who might possibly have some be affected in some way or think that they might have some something to say about your business those are the stakeholders well i was i went to a uh, town hall on homelessness a couple months ago and i saw an old friend uh, i used to teach her philosophy actually and uh, she without having any experience in real estate or mortgages or anything like that is now heading up a project to help end homelessness and produce new homes and she used that word. She's like, I'm going to consult with stakeholders. And our MP, the green MP, uh, Jenica Atwin, she said, I, we need to consult with stakeholders, stakeholders, stakeholders. Then I heard the term at uh, World Economic Forum, Davos, uh, stakeholder capitalism. And what that means essentially is people, how best to say it? The government tends to appoint people politically, whereas the private sector tends to appoint people for productivity. Uh, so these political appointments are not necessarily people that have any executional intelligence whatsoever on the things that they're weighing in on. We need to consult with stakeholders basically means we need to consult with people that don't know what they're talking about and have never accomplished anything. Uh, this is a recipe for doing nothing. I don't see emissions coming down because the government's taking over. I don't see no. housing uh, getting taken care of. The liberals have been spending billions and billions year over year on these housing initiatives. Uh, sure. There haven't been any houses built in my riding. They've done some refurbishments in Vancouver, but that's about it. They're people that don't know what they're doing, that get to spend billions of dollars on projects that uh, never go anywhere. So it, it, right, it's right. And, and, the, and, the, and these guys are about to create a wave of homelessness as uh, you know they're, they're inflating the housing bubble right now by, by suppressing interest rates. And there's a, you know, in my community, you put a house on the market and it's gone within four hours after a, a bidding war where, where people are paying twenty, thirty thousand dollars over asking for it. And now that that's because the interest rates are so low. Now imagine the interest rates just go up a few percentage points. They don't even have to go up to 10% or anything, or even 80s level uh, interest rates where mm -hmm. they went up to 18%. They just have to go up a few percent and we, we're going to have thousands and thousands of people who can't afford their mortgage anymore. So what are they going to do about that? Well, that brings us to chapter six of the budget, which is uh, more affordable housing. So they're going to take your tax money and they're going to build a bunch of housing because uh, that has always worked out well uh, when government built a bunch of housing for people. Well, they never um, get any houses built. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, well, not in my neck of the woods. And that's a problem because when I went to the town hall and in two of the debates that I did, I said, the problem is with CMHC. If you want to fix homelessness, where we have to start is charities have to have the capacity to qualify. And there's so many different ways in which uh, mortgage insurance is not allowing that. The, the appraisal system is probably chief among them. I used to be a mortgage broker for anybody uh, listening in. And I said, this is what the problem is. And we had a local charity that we were going to solve homelessness. They're going to snatch up a hotel and all the homeless could stay there and they can live like kings and do all the meth they want. And they were denied because of CMHC. And I kept bringing this up at the town hall. It's denied because of CMHC. And why do these projects continually get denied? High financing, but continual denials, continually not going anywhere. And so it's because the people heading them up, stakeholder capitalism, the people holding heading them up, don't know what they're doing. There's no executional capacity for this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so I'm a broken just, record. I'm sorry. I'm I'm, I'm pissed. I, I'm all riled up now. Wow, Brandon, I hear you, buddy. All right, sorry. I just Maintain. have to go back here. To calm down. Uh, so we're we're on chapter six here, strengthening the cities and communities we call home. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of support for the CBC in here, supporting Canadian book industry. Um, uh, oh well, here's something that might isn't bad. I, I, there's worse things to spend money on than a memorial to the victims of communism. That's good. Okay. What? Yeah, yeah really? there's a memorial to the victims of communism. I didn't know that. Kudos. I didn't, I didn't Kudos. Hear that in the speech. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like, I don't like, you know, the government's using communist tactics to support a, a memorial to the victims of communism. But, uh, you know, <laughs> if you're going to spend money on something, I guess there's worse things. Um, oh, extending the Northern residence deduction. Okay. That's, that's good. Less taxes is always a good thing. Okay. Let's get to part three, a resilient and inclusive recovery. So here we go into fighting systemic racism and empowering communities. Um, supporting black Canadian communities, better data for better outcomes. I have no idea what any of this stuff means. Um, you know, I, I, anytime I see the government get, getting involved in, in in separating people and identifying them based on their immutable characteristics, uh, my hairs go up on the back of my neck. I think nothing good can come from, from that other than an increase in racial tension and uh, division and um, subjugation. And, you know, I think that's a bad thing. Uh, chapter eight, strong well, I, indigenous communities. I think we should talk about that for a little bit because individualism, I think, is the solution to racism. Yes. I, I don't think big government Marxist, race-based analysis, gender-based analysis, I think working next to competent women in the, working pl in the workplace is the solution to sexism. I, I think yeah. working next to Muslims is competent, intelligent, kind, hardworking Muslims is a solution to xenophobia in, in that. But the more we take this uh, race-based approach, this gender-based analysis, I think the more divisions you have, a friend of mine who's a Palestinian economist, very interesting fellow, Balond Rabaya, uh, he, myself, and another fellow, this was not planned or designed in any way, shape, or form, uh, but he's a Jewish fellow from Israel. And the Palestinian economist and the Jewish uh, friend from Israel, he's the IT guy, there's economist, myself. And he, what he was showing about with uh, racial tensions, uh, war, uh, tensions between nations, 
free trade is the biggest thing that mitigates that. The more free trade yes. we have, the less racism we have, the less capacity we have to go to war, uh, the less hatred, like hatred is diminished. And he was going through all sorts of regression analyses with this. He's a brilliant fellow, but that's how you end it. The free market is, can end this thing. It, it's not government yeah. saying. Well, it, it, it's the old saying, right? That uh, armies don't follow trade routes, right? In other words, yeah. where there's trade, there isn't likely to be armies following that because everyone is winning when there's trade. Um, but uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, chapter eight, we get on to strong indigenous communities. So, you know, they, again, they've broken the, broken the legs off these communities and they're offering them a crutch. Uh, you know, we can go through and, and you know, the, it, it's all the predictable stuff. Uh, protecting our shared values. This is interesting. Keeping Canadians safe and improving access to justice. Gun control is in there. Um, was it in the, the throne speech that I saw? What did what, no, what are they saying about gun I, control? I, well, let me, I'll go, I'll go to the page 277 and see what the budget actually says about gun control here. Well, I'm sure they're giving us more gun freedom. Uh, fire, <laughs> yeah. firearms were used in more than 40% of homicides in Canada, blah, blah, blah. Um, budget 2021 proposes to provide 300 million over five years, starting in, uh, to implement legislation to help protect Canadians from gun violence and to fight gun smuggling and trafficking funding will support these measures will fight gun crime in our communities and keep. Okay. So that, that's a pretty short thing. It's not talking about actual, actually clamping down more i mean they've already done enough damage there I, I, it's hard to imagine they could do any more damage uh, shared values control. in protecting our borders who are these people maxime bernier <laughs> well yeah um okay so Go that's ahead. that's that's kind of a relief that they're not talking about more gun. it's more about gun smuggling and fighting gun crimes which who knows what that looks like uh, but it's something, at least in theory, we can probably possibly not freak out about too much. Um, what else do we got here? Uh, diverting youth away from the justice system, capacity of superior courts. Uh, yeah. Well, okay, now we get into... Go ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm just moving on to part four here, which is fair and responsible government. And here's where it's interesting. Here's where I want to actually dive into some pages because we start with a tax system that promotes fairness. We have a digital services tax, a luxury tax, a tax on unproductive use of Canadian housing, uh, limitations on excess interest deductions, uh, preventing cross-border tax schemes. Is that going to affect your business? Uh, let's see here. Let's, Who do you I'm think gonna... knows more about the tax code, myself or Christia Freeland? I'm not worried. Yeah, yeah. You'll find the loopholes. If you need a, a loophole, Brandon will find it for you. For those okay, who don't know, I have a hedge fund service company that's based in the Cayman Islands. So if she wants to go to war, it's on. Yeah. All right. There's a bunch of digital mumbo jumbo here. Okay. So so budget 2021, here's what the digital service tax is. At a rate of 3% on revenue from digital services that rely on data and content contributions for Canadian users. Okay. So you can expect your bill on things like, I imagine, Netflix and... Uh, cable and everything else to go up uh, 3%. Um, it's estimated this measure will raise $3.4 billion in revenue over five years. Yeah, uh, and 
I think the quality for programs that you don't pay for, for uh, we're going live on Facebook right now. So what's the quality of that going to look like? Are there going to have to be more ads, for example? Are we going to see more right. throttling of the pages we yeah. want so they get yeah, replaced we're, we're, by we're sponsored using, ads? We're, we're using StreamYard right now, and we're, we're broadcasting to YouTube and a couple other places. How is how, how you're right? How how are these platforms like StreamYard and YouTube and Facebook going to come up with that three percent? They're they're going to need to make three percent uh, somehow off of this broadcast that we're doing right now, which seems uh, absolutely insane. Um, a tax on sales of here's the luxury tax. It's a, yep. a tax on the sale for personal use of luxury cars and personal aircraft with retail values priced over a hundred thousand dollars. And boats for personal use over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. The Here's the tax would be calculated at the lesser of twenty percent of the value or ten percent. Here's what uh, popped into my mind when I read that. When you take a look at luxury cars, how the electric vehicle market is looking to expand is they do the luxury cars first. And the reason why is the margins are so much higher. So you can turn profits really easy with the luxury cars, then you do the mid-level, and then you do uh, the uh, the budget cars. They just work the way down. So if they're going to cut off luxury cars and make them not profitable for the electric vehicle market, then the electric vehicle market's going to have a hard time expanding. We're not going to have market saturation. I don't know right. how that's going to play out. I don't know what the rollout or what the execution looks like. I'm going to have to see more details on it. But superficially, when I first saw that, I was thinking, then how is the electric vehicle market supposed to expand? Yeah, that's a good point. You know, Teslas aren't that cheap, but... Uh... Uh, okay, and then it goes on. They're, they're talking about tack, tackling tax avoidance and evasion here. They're going to spend a bunch of money to try to clamp down and audit uh, GST on large businesses. Uh, they're going to strengthen the CRA with $230 million, which they think will get them $5 billion in outstanding taxes over five years. So it's going to be tougher to avoid uh, government plunder, I guess. Um, I, You know, everybody says that all the time it, you know there's going to be some sort of a canadian version of fatca is what uh jagmeet singh was uh, saying something to that effect where you know they're going to be looking at uh, people moving their money around uh, with multinational corporations and christia freeland was hinting on but they're so light on the details i yeah. don't even know that it's necessarily a good thing because when you write a check to the cayman islands the money grows and then when you take the money back into canada you repatriate the funds it gets taxed it's like a glorified RSP. It's not necessarily tax revenue negative. I mean, it might even be a good thing. I mean, I wouldn't make that assertion. I'm just saying, I, I, I don't know what it is that they're getting at. But year over year in every budget, every leftist is saying we need to close down these tax loopholes. Can you be a little bit heavier on the specifics? And they never are. And the reason why they never are is exactly what we're talking about, stakeholder capitalism. You look at what Trudeau said. He said low-income Canadians don't pay income taxes. He said that right. in uh, February 2019 in QP, low-income. So he doesn't understand the tax code. Christia Freeland, no background in finance whatsoever, is going to work to crack down on tax loopholes. The hell does she know what she's doing? She doesn't know what she's doing. And yet they're heading up these massive projects. Like it's, 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 it's a bizarre world that we live in where people put their trust, especially leftists who actually have these as objectives. You and I don't have these as objectives, but they do. They put their trust in people that don't know what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's insane. Um, that pretty much sums up the uh, 
the the budget those are the really high level Coles notes version just the stuff that stuck out to Brandon and I right off the top uh the, the other thing that they mentioned um to, right at the end was that their target is that they believe they'll the, the economy will rebound where the debt to GDP ratio will be uh 1% in 2 years now this was uh, supposed to be their their target it, right now the debt to gdp ratio is supposed to be this they, they said that all their spending was actually going to bring in more revenue and increase business and all that kind of thing and uh, of course uh you can't really do that when the economy shut down but now in two years uh, it's going to be what what do you think of that do you think that's even possible well they must be referring to deficit to gdp ratio it's one percent uh, well maybe it was deficit to gdp yeah Could yeah be. So I guess they'd be projecting like a $44 billion deficit. Is it possible? You know what the problem is? The problem is when government spending is like heroin. It, it makes things worse and worse and worse, and yet people get addicted to it anyways. Like it, it's hard to get people weaned off of it. And so when you introduce these new programs, it, it's hard to just quit cold turkey. And to say, okay, well, we're going to go down to these levels of spending. Uh, if they can grow the economy, I mean, the, the question is predicated on whether or not they can grow the economy. And the problem is when you do spending, because we live in a global world these days, this is not the world that uh, John Maynard Keynes lived in. This is 2021. If you hire a road worker to uh, develop some infrastructure, they're not spending it on Canadian goods. They're buying uh, Japanese cars. They're buying electronics from South Korea. They're buying Florida oranges. They're buying Scotch whiskey, which, you know, I'm not against any of these things. I, th I think they're fantastic and I, I love free trade. But the reality of the situation is when you increase spending, you're not necessarily investing in the Canadian economy. And they're talking about, well, we'll increase spending and you're going to see this in terms of economic output. That's not what happens. What happens is they buy foreign goods, which again, I'm all for free trade. But when you buy the foreign goods, it leaves us with the debt and other economies prosper because of it. Well, government misallocates those funds, right? Whereas you and I in a private uh, sector, we would be putting that money towards things that where we have personal skin in the game, where our livelihoods are at risk. Yep. We make good and damn sure that money, that we don't kill that money, that it goes somewhere that it's going to grow and it's going to produce value and that's going to benefit us. And, you know, government do doesn't have any skin in the game. None of these people have any skin in the game. They're just the tossing money around to virtue signal. And of course, that destroys wealth because it, it not only kills that money by misallocating it, 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 in the first place, it removes it from people who would otherwise invest it. So it, it kills things in two different ways. Uh, but here, I was just looking up the, the debt to GDP ratio and uh, Canada's debt to GDP Jet to debt to GDP ratio right now is 343 percent. It's one of the highest in the world. So we're even higher than the states, and we and we hear trillions of dollars uh, being printed up in the states there under Biden and Trump. And um, you know they're still not as bad as Canada. Canada is, is in a far worse position. So yeah, you know, buckle your seatbelts. And so that's I want to get into the next bit here because before we sign off. Brandon, we promised our listeners here um, some of your your advice about how we can pretend. And look, I'm selfishly asking for myself. Like <laughs> I have some ideas. I'm not a financial wizard like you are. You know, I've got some crypto stuff. I've got some precious metals. Uh, obviously, I, I recognize our dollar is, you know, in its death throes right now. 
and is likely to to be killed off here in the next decade probably if, and and so we need to be prepared for that i also recognize there's a housing bubble being built blown up right now and i don't know whether you know here's my thought on purchasing a house right now like you tell me is it better to buy a house now while the interest rates are low assuming that interest rates go up i can still afford the mortgage payments or or is it better to wait for a crash and then uh you know buy when the, when there's blood in the water and to me the 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 uh i guess the factor is is the money printing going to you know like if i buy a house right now for $500,000 even though that seems expensive right now at the rate they're printing money that house might be worth $2 million in a few years because money is worthless so in some aspects of buying a house for $500,000 now if if we think that the dollar is going to become more and more worthless at a rapid pace um might not be a bad investment but if we think the dollar is going to hold its value then it is a bad investment. Am I on the right track? Am I on the wrong track? Am I thinking about this the wrong way? No, I think you're right. I mean, it, it's going to perform inversely. The value of housing uh, stabilizes over time. So do commodities as well. Uh, so insofar as you see yeah, fluctuations- assuming a stable dollar and, a, and yeah, a proper free market banking system. Whatever performs inversely, but you don't necessarily have to invest in the Canadian housing market or the American housing market, because it, I mean, again, we live in a global, you, I mean, there's multiple jurisdictions where you're not going to see this sort of a collapse. Uh, Peter Schiff, who's a name that would be uh, familiar is actually recommending New Zealand as uh, a place yeah. to take a look at, which sounds odd because their prime minister Jacinda is a bit of a socialist, but uh, the policies there are actually quite, uh, they're quite market friendly. So I, I'm not too worried about uh, places like New Zealand, but I would always recommend uh, commodities. I'd always recommend anything that performs inversely. But again, take a look at the budget. Uh, the budget, you see a lot of these, uh, a lot of these programs are earmarked for specific industries. It's not going to work out for you and I, but okay, so we're going to see the collapse of the dollar. Well, who's printing out the dollar? The big banks, who's issuing these bonds? You're going to see a lot of bond issuance. Who's profiting off of that? So buy those stocks where people uh, people uh, profit off of the collapse of the dollar. That's what I recommend. I mean, you always want to do right. your- and So, uh, so what, are, what, are, what are some of those, just give me an example of some of the, the types of industries or places people should look where they can find businesses that are going to profit off the collapse of the dollar. Oh, the financial sector for sure. Yeah, the financial sector, absolutely. I mean, I just took out some more shares in BMO today, so it's right. that. That's where I think you're going to see a lot of uh, a lot of people that have access to uh, printing capacity. A lot of people that work with the central banks, uh, you're going to see their wealth go up, and you're going to see their stocks go up. Now, that being said, this is not financial advice because I am anticipating a bit of a market correction that I myself am recognizing. I'm probably just going to ride out the wave of the market correction right. and we'll buy stocks. And, and, and you're also app. making a big, big assumption there too, Brandon, that uh, uh, I won't be prime minister, right? Because if I'm prime minister, those fat cats, those, those <laughs> that stuff you just invested in is going to be junk because the central banks and all these uh, financial service firms, they're propped up by uh, cronious regulation. They're propped up by state violence. So you're making a pretty big assumption there, right? Are you, are you roll, really going to roll the dice that I'm not prime minister? I'm rolling the dice that when you become prime minister, you're going to set corporate <laughs> taxes to zero. And uh, I'll okay, be on well, my hands and knees yeah. praying that uh, <laughs> that comes first before we eliminate central banking. That'll be just fine. But uh, mm, okay. Well, actually, you know... 
we're already developing a cronyist relationship here. I don't like it. Well, you know, I, <laughs> I, I have raised that question. A lot of my banking friends have asked me that question because when I talk about libertarianism to people in the financial their se sector, they'd always say, yeah, but so what I do is if you take a look at the balance sheets of how much a lot of people, uh, the oil and gas industry. I'm totally opposed to subsidies going to oil and gas industry. I think it's terrible. I don't like giving money to people who poison the air we breathe. I think it's stupid. But if we actually eliminated their corporate tax, they're going to be up. Like they're going to be doing better than if we simply keep the situation the way it is and continue to subsidize them. Same thing with the banks. If we eliminate the capacity to print free money, okay, yeah, that's really going to hurt their profit margins. There's no question about that. That's going to hurt them huge. But if you eliminate their tax bill, I think that offsets it. And then in the end, there'll, there'll probably be some stability there. I mean, yeah. in the long run. Yeah. But yeah, yeah that's, that's what cool. I recommend. Commodities, cryptocurrency, uh, not Bitcoin, but uh, cryptocurrencies, if you have a diversified portfolio in uh, the financial sector, those are the... Yeah. Those are the people that are going to make a lot of – there's other sectors as well. I think we saw that in the budget today too, especially with uh, telcos. Uh, they yeah. regulate the competition out of existence. Right. Well, that's right. fantastic. So their profit margins get to – I mean, everyone else has to pay more for their cell phone bill. Well, that sucks. It sucks yeah, for as them. Long as, we have, as long as we have the CRTC, we're going to have a, a bottleneck on um, mobile you – know, on data and telecoms, right? Um, there's, there's going to be basically, I think there's seven big corporations that, that control the market. There's no room for anyone else to get in. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they, they divvy out their tokens to these small players like Fido and, and other things, but essentially they're operating on its owned by basically seven corporations and no one else is getting that because of the CRTC, uh, buying land in New Zealand looks like it's off the table. I thought this was the case cause I have a, a couple of friends. I know a billionaire, Rick Rule. Actually, he he has land in New Zealand, and he um, he mentioned that this they, they're looking at all these billionaires are looking at New Zealand as a safe haven where they can get away from um, geopolitical forces that the rest of uh, the world kind of faces. I think that's one of the reasons why New Zealand was able to uh, shield itself from the pandemic is because they're they're on an isolated, remote kind of part of the world, and I think that's what is attractive in some places part to people but um we're gonna have to talk about uh, I, don't, I don't know how much time you have but we we're gonna well, have to talk I, about I don't have a lot of time i'm, I'm yeah. gonna have to wrap up here pretty quick i gotta get uh, i gotta work tonight and um you know i'm on the front lines of the pandemic i'll tell you one story here um had a patient uh, a few days ago a lady who's a type 1 diabetic uh, in her 60s uh, probably 400 450 pounds um <clears throat> She lost her sense of taste and smell two weeks ago and had cold-like symptoms, increasing shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, like just the bullet list of, of your classic COVID symptoms. Uh, and it's getting getting worse. Now, where did you get this from? Well, my grandson was here for 10 days and he had a bit of a cold, but we didn't think anything of it. Okay, have you been tested? Do you know if you have COVID? Oh, no, I don't have COVID. I haven't been tested. I just have a cold or something. You know, the rest of my whole family all got cold. Well, did any of them get tested? No. Uh, okay, so your family has been out and about <laughs> infecting everyone. This is this is why you know lockdowns don't work because people still interact with each other. They still live in homes with each other, and they're going to spread the virus no matter what. And and um, whether you are destroying businesses makes little difference as to whether the, this family is together in a house and spreading the germs around and not being responsible enough to to quarantine themselves when they are actually sick. 
right? I mean, if all if, if the government would have just said, hey, look, if you're sick, if you have anything that looks like a cold, um, just stay home until the symptoms are gone and get and you get a negative test. That would have been far superior, in my opinion, to, well, destroying everyone's lives and creating, um, accelerating the death of Western civilization. But there you go. There's my little rant. It's a good rant. It's uh, and I agree. Uh, lockdowns, they don't flatten the curve. They just delay the curve. They do nothing. They just destroy the economy. It's, it's such a ridiculous thing to do. I'm all for washing yeah. hands and wearing masks and doing things that, you know, help actually prevent the, the disease. But these government mandated programs don't work. They don't work. And, you know, people are just sick of them. You're right. Like even this, this lady who was, um, you know, in a high risk category, I mean, her oxygen sats were in the low 70%. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if she, she dies. Um, you know, she should have been super careful. And, but because this thing is the government has drugged this thing on for so long, everyone's getting tired of it. Everyone's letting their guard down. The people that shouldn't be letting their guard down are letting their guard down. If they would have just let the rest of us uh, spread, spread our germs around and, you know, build up some herd immunity, these people might be protected and we might, but anyways, I, I digress. Um, I'll keep you forever if we go. go on about this sort of thing, but no, thanks a lot, yeah. Tim. I think it was a good discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, Thank you to our listeners for for listening uh, to this uh, last minute podcast. Um, you know, sad news for Canada. It's not looking good, but um, there you go. Go to libertarian.ca slash join. Uh, we've been against um, <laughs> lockdowns since our founding over 45 years ago. Um, we'll be against lockdowns for the next 45 years. And we're also against things like the income tax and we're for uh, promoting um, or changing the constitution to protect private uh, property rights and, and uh, all sorts of good things. So go to libertarian.ca, check out our platform and join us if you think it's uh, worth fighting for um, because man, we really got to push back against this stuff or it's all coming crashing down. And then the only person getting rich is Brandon because he knows because he's betting against libertarians. And <laughs> uh, I am betting against your electoral success. I guess <laughs> I guess that would probably be a fair, a, a wise uh, insurance policy is to bet against liberty, liberty winning. But one quick uh, add-on too is uh, if you liked what you heard, don't hesitate to run as a candidate. Message the party. I'll contact you myself. Uh, we can do the vetting, and I can let you know what it uh, looks like to run as a candidate. It's not hard. I did it. Tim's done it. You can do it. Uh, so if you are thinking yeah. about it, uh, we do expect that there will be some sort of a collapse of the government by the end of the year. Maybe not on this vote, but uh, we are anticipating it. And the sooner you get started, the easier it is. Uh, yeah. It's a lot of fun. It's the most fun that you can have. And you get to preach about the same things that Tim and I have been talking about today. Yeah. And guys, uh, you know, I'm a firefighter paramedic. I put wet stuff on red stuff. I'm, uh, you know, basically a blue collar worker. I had no, I have no political ambitions. I, I never did, but I just got, I, I realized a few years ago I had to do something because as much as I wanted to leave politics alone, it wasn't leaving me alone. So if you feel like that, if you feel like me, you know, join us, we're a bunch of volunteers, we're a ragtag group, <laughs> but you know, uh, our hearts in the right place. And, and uh, we're making, we're making some headway. There's more and more people identifying as libertarians. We're going to change culture and as culture changes, then government will change. So, so thanks for tuning in and uh, hopefully we catch you next time. Thanks, Jim.